So we're in Isaiah 2. And this first four chapters of Isaiah, as I read it, could easily be spoken to the United States. Everything that's said here we are doing, everything that God says he is grumpy with Israel about, we are doing. Backing up in uh, verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures and their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. What he's describing is extreme wealth and extreme military might. That's us. And then their land is filled with idols and they bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. And having gone away from God culturally, that's what we're doing. So keep in mind when Israel goes off the rails and descends into practices that cause God to finally say, I've had it up to here, you're going into exile. The fact that it's Israel and the fact that it's talking about horses instead of tanks and airplanes might give you the option of thinking that, well, gee, this is just talking about them at that time, but it's not. It's talking about us today. So as we go forward, sort of keep that in mind, and I will continue to point it out. So we're down at Isaiah 2.12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. I will gently suggest that that would apply to us in spades right now. One of the things that Democrat administrations have done is they have presumed to know what's best for other countries. So they will go in just say, we don't like the way you're running your country, and they'll destabilize them. And what you wind up, of course, with is the flood of migrants that are coming from Africa and the Middle East up into Europe because the governments that were running those areas, uh, Syria and Gaddafi, and were just capriciously destroyed. And I'm not speaking in great defense of either Assad in Syria or Gaddafi in Libya, but the fact is that we just sort of up one morning and decided we don't like those people and we destroyed them. And what winds up happening then is the whole region is thrown into turmoil and it's all because of our hubris that we think we know what's better for somebody else than they know themselves. This litany of prideful things I think applies very much to us. One of the things that is fashionable right now among the Democratic Party is socialism. Socialism, every place it has been tried, leads to murder, death, starvation, privation. Nothing good comes out of it except for the very top. And you tell these people that and they say, oh, well, when we do it, we're going to do it right and it's going to be okay. That's hubris. That you can take something that has been proven not to work all over the world for a hundred years since Marx never has worked anywhere and always leads to misery, murder, death, uh, often the death of millions of people. And oh, well, they just didn't do it right. 
If we do it, it's going to be okay. That's hubris. And it isn't insanity, it's pride. So as we have this list of things that God is going to bring low, as I have often said, if God doesn't deal with us, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because, you know, you've got at least two states right now that have legalized infanticide. If you look at the stuff that the Colorado legislature is contemplating, they're not far behind them. And all of that, by the way, is out of fear that Ruth Ginsburg is about to die. And they believe that if Ginsburg dies and Trump appoints a Supreme Court justice, then Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Well, what happens when Roe versus Wade is overturned is not the case that abortion gets made illegal. It's the case that the states now get to decide. It ceases to be a federal constitutional right, and then it goes back to the states to do whatever you want. So the states, New York and Virginia, are getting their state laws lined up so that when Roe goes away, abortion doesn't. And it's all pride. So pick it up at 17 again. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And that's straight out of Revelation, except it was written before Revelation was written. Because one of the things that happens when stuff starts falling from the sky and the kings of the earth hide in caves in the rocks. And what you ought to be thinking is places like NORAD, you know, where you've got, we've hollowed out mountains. When I was in Defense Intelligence Agency, they periodically would take us to Maryland where there is a mountain hollowed out and full of command and control and stuff. We had the same thing when I was in Korea. A mountain hollowed out in Korea where leadership goes in the case of a war. So what's being talked about is as the Lord turns and deals with the world, the kings of the earth, if you will, the governments, have got places in the mountains all hollowed out where they can send people to survive whatever to be able to continue to rule afterwards. Isaiah was written long before Revelation, but it's talking about the same thing. Verse 20, In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Now, the translation here is strange. Let me read to the end of the chapter, and we'll come back and talk about the translation. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? So backing up, the way my translation is punctuated in verse 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols and they will cast them away to the moles and to the bats to enter the caves of the rocks, which is where moles and bats live. And so this reads again like when great big rocks start falling out of the sky in Revelation. Islands are moved out of the way and that kind of thing. And then verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? What's going on there is most people are not leaders. 
most people go along to get along, just the way people are. What's happening now in the United States and what this is talking about is the primary example is the Twitter storm, where somebody says something that offends the Twitter ecosphere, and the Twitter ecosphere explodes, and this guy then is ritually shamed and often cast out of his job and, and so forth, like it's happening right now to the governor in Virginia. Deservedly so, by the way. But what that is is the fear of man. What I'm afraid of is what everybody else is going to say about me. And what God is saying is, knock that off. Because everybody breathes just like you do. And don't be afraid of man, be afraid of him. Yeshua says the same thing. Why do you worry about somebody that can only destroy your body? Worry about the one who can destroy your soul. So this is completely consistent with Isaiah and speaks to humanity in general forever. Social pressure will get people to do stuff that they objectively know is wrong and they do it because of the fear of social pressure. That's what he's talking about here. So I'm all the way down to chapter 3 now. For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, everyone his neighbor. The youth shall be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. So what he's talking about here is upsetting the normal social order. The normal social order is that wise men, judges, and so forth sort of keep idiots suppressed. And every society's got idiots. And very often they're just young. But the point is, what he's going to do is he's going to take those people out of power and he's going to raise up children, children in quotes, to rule over them. And again, look at the Democrat Party in Congress right now. I mean, it's a collection of colorful weirdos. And they're children, literally in their 20s. They have the arrogance and the lack of experience of youth and they have been miseducated. And they are disrespectful of elders and they are children trying to rule over us. It's interesting because one of the things they give lip service to is the idea that what we're doing is unsustainable and the planet's not going to be able to sustain life in 12 years if we don't stop. Yet, what they are doing is they are sacrificing their own children, either through infanticide, abortion, or this gender dysphoria. They're sterilizing their children in the name of sexual deviancy, and they are anything but looking to the long-term preservation of the country, even though that's what they claim to be looking toward for political power. You've got to give us power, otherwise the planet's going to be dead in 12 years, but I'm sterilizing our children, I'm killing our children, so... You see the dichotomy there? Verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. 
and this heap of ruins shall be your rule. So what we've done is we have destroyed the normal hierarchy of society, and the place has been reduced to a heap of ruin, and people then look for somebody who, quote, has a cloak, in other words, somebody who has a little more than anybody else, and say, you go ahead and rule over us, and by the way, your kingdom is this pile of rubble. Verse 7, in that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. So what the guy that they want to have lead is going to say is, no, I don't want the job. Verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Does that sound like maybe a slut walk? Remember the phenomenon of a slut walk? Some babe was testifying before Congress saying she couldn't afford as much birth control as she needed. And some commentator says she's a slut. So being a slut then became an object of pride, and you had women all across the left political spectrum having slut walks, where they dressed like sluts, and they walk and parade through cities in pride. It's like gay pride, except it's not gay. But the point is, verse 9, their look on their faces bears the witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And the point I am making is a slut walk is failing to hide your sin. It is getting your sin right out there in the middle of the public square and saying, look at me. And gay pride is the same way, by the way. I'm not picking entirely on women. I'm just, that was the one that came to mind. I could have picked another one. As I'm reading Isaiah, what I'm saying to you is, Everything in these first four chapters of Isaiah could be written to the United States. So verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. So what he's saying is there are in fact some righteous within Judah and Jerusalem, and I will watch over you. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. In other words, what goes around comes around. So whatever the wicked have done, God will ensure that that same thing gets done to them. God's iron law of sowing and reaping. Verse 12. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. Having women rule over you is not generally a good thing. They're not designed for it. Occasionally you get a Margaret Thatcher or Golda Meir that can handle it, but it's fairly rare. And what's happening now is the whore of Babylon is running for president. Camilla Harris is the whore of Babylon. She got into her position by whoredom, and she lives in Babylon, represents California. Verse 13. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. 
It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And one of the things that socialism does is it gives the poor just enough to survive, but it keeps them in a position where they can never thrive. If they earn enough to thrive, they lose their secure benefit, and so they're kept at a subsistence level, voting for people who will give them that subsistence level, and their rulers are feeding on them. Somebody once said, and I don't remember who it was, the poor are a gold mine, because you have millions of mid-level and upper-level bureaucrats and politicians that live by eating the poor. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and the Lord shall lay bare their secret parts. Now you understand why slut walk was on my mind earlier. I mean, gay pride would have been just fine too, but having read this earlier was primed there. But if you look at the women with the pink hats, that's what you're talking about. It's interesting, if, if you were to look at a group of such women, they are the most uninteresting group of women that you can imagine. They are not, by and large, terribly attractive, and they have made themselves deliberately unattractive in the process. Mm-hmm. An average-looking woman can work at it and make herself look attractive if she wishes. These aggressively do not wish. Verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes and the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments and the turbans and the veils. That pretty much covers it, I think, okay? Verse 24. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robes, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And that she, I believe, is Jerusalem. Two things. Thing one is I hope you are getting the impression that Isaiah is not only talking to Judah and Jerusalem, 700 years BC, he's also talking to all people at all times. And what we're seeing in our society is a late stage empire that has fallen into all of this. Because remember, what Judah and Jerusalem are, as we read earlier this evening, is they are tremendously wealthy and they have tremendous military power. They are secure, or they think they are. So they are in every way in the same position as the United States is in today. And their behavior in that position or from that position is exactly what we see here in the United States today. Same circumstance, same behavior. Chapter 4. 
And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And we have just talked about the daughters of Zion, who have become haughty and have been torn down. And you, I'm sure, all know that God permits polygamy. And so the idea now is women desiring justification will come to a man and will say, take me under your tallit, bring me into your household. I will economically support myself, but I want your name and I want your protection. As in, I want to be made an honest woman is what we would have said 50 years ago. That's what's being talked about here. 50 years ago, when a man and a woman were shacked up without benefit of matrimony, making an honest woman of her means you married her. But a couple of things in context. Remember, we have talked about the haughtiness of the women, and God says, I will take everything that you've got away and leave you with nothing. Yes, with war or whatever, there's going to be a shortage of men, But more than a shortage of men, I personally see this as I have just been humiliated, humbled. Everything I have has been taken away from me. I need to be under the covering of a man. And by the way, taking away your approach is used by Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, and by Rachel, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, when they became pregnant, they said that the Lord has taken away their reproach. So the, the comment of seven women asking to have their reproach taken away from may, in fact, talk about fertility or uh, fertilization. Verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the lands shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. And of course you all recognize that the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud indicates the presence of the Lord in the middle of the city. This could be talking about, probably is talking about, the millennial reign. When Yeshua himself comes back and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. That's very likely what this is talking about. Could be talking about the new heaven and the new earth, but the point is what we're now talking about is a time after the time when God deals with Judah and Jerusalem when he will restore. And that restoration will involve the very presence of God in the middle of the city as it was when the temple was first consecrated. 4.6 There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm by night. The booth there is a sukkah. And that would indicate that he is coming back at Sukkot, which is one of the things that I happen to believe. 
I happen to believe that the day when nobody knows the day or the hour refers to Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah because you don't know the day or the hour until you actually see the moon. You can sort of set on the calendar when you think the Yom Teruah is going to be, but in fact, you have to see the moon before it is. So nobody actually knows when it's going to happen until it does happen. And then Yeshua touches down on the Mount of Olives at the seventh trumpet, I believe. And then you have a come to Jesus meeting, which is Yom Kippur. And then he tabernacles with his people, which is Sukkot. So I see this as being the fall feasts, if you will. The booths happen after the come to Jesus meeting. In other words, this is the survivors. What he's dealing with, according to Isaiah here, are the unrighteous. And he specifically says those who are righteous will make it through. That's what Yom Kippur is about, is repentance, the Day of Atonement.